Tuesday morning this weekend because we had a bank holiday and so we don't work on bank holidays, Pat. But there was so much sport over the weekend that you're bringing us a hot story to start off with. Yes, indeed, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to talk about... Racing pigeons. Racing pigeons, there you go. Mm. Welcome to the Out of Time podcast. We're going to talk about racing pigeons. <laughs> For all your racing pigeon needs. <laughs> Yeah, it's the world transfer record for a pigeon. I'm going to guess six grand. Six grand? Yeah. Okay, I'll give you, I'll set you in the right direction first okay. of all. The previous record was from 2017. Yeah. And it was 400,000. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Armando... <laughs> Who, who was sold over the weekend by, hang on till I get this right, Joel Verschut from West Flanders. All I can think of is uh, is uh, Samuel L. Jackson in, in Pulp Fiction now going, that want to be one charming motherfucking pigeon <laughs> <laughs> for 400 grand. <laughs> <laughs> very, very charming pigeon. Specifically three times more charming than his predecessor. This pigeon sold for 1.2 Five million. Stop. Over the weekend. Stop. <laughs> and that the, is untrue. That, that is not only astonishing. <laughs> believe it or not, the pigeon is closing fast on five years, which is apparently retirement age. So, so it's like so, signing Ronaldo, <laughs> uh, where you're kind of going, he's got a few more years in him, hasn't he? But mainly, he's going to be used for breeding. Okay, how much money is in raising pigeons? Well. This is interesting, you should ask. There is not that much money in racing pigeons, except about from, if, if I'm working out the timeline right, roughly about five years ago, a group of Chinese businessmen. Of course, of who, course. I knew they'd be in there somewhere. <laughs> who I'm guess all, uh, guessing all know each other, got way into the pigeons. <laughs> and they have driven the prices through the ceiling. Uh, like, off the chain for over the last couple of years. The 400,000 a few years ago was considered bonkers. Um, the guy <laughs> um, for a shoot in, in Flanders who was selling this one, the auction for this, uh, for Armando, was being done online. And he said that like about halfway through, he started to realise, oh my God. Because one of the, there was two guys bidding against each other, yeah. two property tycoons in China. Uh, one of whom was upping his bid by 100,000 every time. And the other guy would come in and bid 20 grand more every time. Hoping to scare him off with an yeah. extra 20 grand. And it just... But he's playing in, in the big leagues now. playing in the big leagues now. And Armando ended up being sold for 1.25 million. That is magnificent. But that is... A, that is... I want to scrap the rest of the show. <laughs> I need to dig into this story. This is outrageous. It is mind-boggling. <laughs> and actually, the Joel Verschut, who sold the pigeons, commented on the how over the weekend he used to work in an abattoir and then he got into pigeons himself. He now has about 500 <laughs> pigeons. Um, uh, and uh, he's commented that over the weekend he made more over the weekend than he has in his entire life. I should think so. Mm. And he was absolutely bemused by the turn of events. And they asked him, what are you going to do with the money? And he said, nothing special. 
That was it. <laughs> well, thanks very much for everybody for listening to Out of Time this morning. And that's our lot. Goodbye. <laughs> That's outrageous. Um, we do have uh, other far less exciting sport to talk about uh, from over the weekend. Um, we will be chatting to Johnny Watterson in a while about uh, Katie Taylor and Michael Conlon's um, boxing exploits over the weekend. And Emmett Malone is going to be on to us to talk about the International Week and <clears throat> possibly uh, maybe the FAI and their Maybe a little bit caper. about checks, yeah. Uh, but... First of all, we must, we must, I guess, talk about the rugby and Jerry Thornley is here. How are you, Jerry? Not too bad, thanks, man. Morning. Uh, Jerry, you uh, were there, of course, on Saturday. Uh, talk us down off the ledge here. How, how, how bad is all this? Or how, how not bad is all this? It was a bad day. It was a very bad day. Let's keep in contact. It was a bad day. Um, and a bad tournament. Uh, Ireland finished third. You know, if that's a bad tournament, where does that leave France, Scotland and Italy then? Um, okay, it wasn't a great tournament. It was a, it was a disappointing tournament, anticlimactic and ultimately a damaging day, no doubt about it. Um, the uh, Welsh had a game plan from the start. Uh, they executed brilliantly. We're 7 nil up, a bit like the English game. Um, the press box in the Millennium Stadium is pitch side. It's unusual. Oh, it's it not, is, yeah. It's I know not it's, like yeah. any other press box that I know of in the rub- global rugby world. And uh, you get a different perspective on it. Um, and it was actually instructive to see the actual body language of the players initially to go in 7-0 seven, seven down, the Irish players, was quite good. And people forget that for the next, for the first quarter of the match, they responded very strongly and worked their way upfield. They could have taken a kick at 10-0 to make it 10-3. It might have been better policy. They went to the corner and they had a very good line-up mall and... Um, Utterly inconsistent with his pedantic refereeing whenever Ireland defended a line-out or did anything for that matter. Angus Gardner permitted Justin Tippert not so much to come through the front gate as to take the side entrance then come in through the back door and to negate the Irish mall. And it was a disgraceful decision to award Wales a turnover scrum and a big moment of the match. And all the big mo- momentous moments as it were went with Wales in that first half. Bar Tyg Burns a uh, wonderful turnover and Garrett Davies as he does diving in on a prone um, Bundyaki to have a reverse penalty, which probably would have been another three points on the board. Um, but um, yeah, the all the all the key subplots like the roof being open, Ireland's decision effectively, um, a democratic decision I made I understand between made between all the players and the coaching staff, definitely backfired because Wales are the best defensive team in Europe, if not the world, and give them a lead. They're a brilliant front running team as well as being a very good comeback team, and the game just got away from them, and then gradually. You know, they got very rattled by the Gardner decision-making. Johnny particularly, Johnny Sexton, Rory Best. One could understand it, like if you look at the Tiger for on penalty, it's a joke. He takes a step forward and a step back. If that's offside, there are an extra 30, 40 penalties per game. Um, likewise, the scrum penalty against Keane Healy when the Irish scrum was actually on top uh, was very, very pedantic in the conditions. He barely touched the ground, pops back up again. And that's their six points for that. Like, they were very cheap six points and they were very important six points. They're effectively equivalent to a converted try. And in those in that weather conditions, there was you knew you knew it was all up by half time. What was really alarming was to see the amount of errors creep into the team throughout. Nearly everybody made a mistake, um, and Johnny Sexton lost complete confidence in his restart game. They became like wounded ducks. Murray put one out in the full. He put one out in the full. He kicked a kick off dead. It was just you know Rob Carney going for switch when Johnny was thought he was just staying outside him. It was just. It was it was a horror show in the second half just to see it unfold the way it did. My biggest regret 
for not my biggest regret, one of the regrets I have about the game is that Joe Schmidt has used 36 players and rightly talked about broadening the squad base and exposing more and more players to the white-hot furnace of Six Nations rugby. Well, 22 nil down after 54 minutes. Why not throw Jordan Larmer, Jack Cardi and Kieran Marmion in? I can understand why he stayed loyal to Conor Murray and Johnny Sexton. He probably wants to see them play through this and he probably didn't want to send out a message I'm sending, taking off my main man with 25 minutes to go, but he might actually have been doing Johnny a favour. And he certainly could have explained it to Johnny, look, I, this one chance I get to see Jack Cardi for 25 minutes, the game was up. And Cardi did very well when he came on. If I could just say one other thing, the biggest disappointment for me, this Irish team at the moment, and moving forward and where they really have to improve their, their game, is the, as Joe Schmidt acknowledged afterwards, is the ability to change things up. Mm. When they fall behind, they're not a good catch-up team. Yeah, and that's going to happen. Um, Mal, since... The Argentina Tour of 2014, Ireland have trailed 12 times at half-time. They've lost 11 of them. They've only won once, and that was in Rome against Italy, when they did well to come back, but it was against Italy in Rome. So this is a playing catch-up rugby. They're a very prescriptive team. They're going to have to bring a little bit more offload into the game and a bit more variety to their kicking game. It was quite instructive to see Jack Cardi come on and put in that lovely little dink to the left wing for Jacob Stockdale, which ultimately led to the consolation try and preserved, and meant they didn't suffer the ignominy of it of drawing a blank for the first time since the Hamilton Horror Show in 2012. That was something. But I just would have liked to have seen Cardi on the pitch for 20, 25 minutes and Marmion and Larmer. Particularly when you're chasing a game, is about the one player in the squad in the absence of Simon Zebo, who has that little bit of X, X factor, who can make something happen out of nothing in broken play with his footwork. Um, but it's something that is a little bit of a problem going forward. Um, plus the fact that teams have started to figure us out. Stop the line-out mall, takes on, take Ireland on in the air and stop those one-off runners or the runners on the game line, which is frequently, that's the biggest worry for me, that the lack of forward momentum that the, the ball carriers up front are generating or Bundyaki are generating across that game line. Albeit, I do think this was something of a lot of, of a one-off game. Wales at home, seeking a grand slam, the roof open, the rain, the early lead, the refereeing. I think in many respects, they've got to remember what happened after the full-time whistle, but a lot of what happened before, they can just forget. But when you say one-off game, Jerry, I mean, is how we lost this game not very similar to how we lost it against England? It's the exact same thing. It's team stopping ball carriers in early phases, compete at the breakdown, and we run out of ideas. And we end up running into a wall. We have territory, we have possession. We're not converting. And All of this is true, but I would remind you that in the England game, Ireland at least came back to lead at one point. And on the hour mark, we're still very much in the game. This one just got away. I think this one... It, I initially think the response of the team was quite good and quite strong, but then gradually they lost their way. Um, but I would say it's better it happens now than it happened next September, that's for sure. One of the other things that struck me is that we love Joe Schmidt because he's such a details-oriented mm-hmm. kind of guy. But so many of the details lately seem to be going wrong. Like the roof thing everybody's accepting was a bad call. But our lineouts were a shambles on Saturday. Was that James Ryan's fault? He was calling the lineouts, Or... Is, does, is, there, is that run deeper than one well, person? A couple of some of Roy's best starts weren't the best. There was one that was very badly undercooked, only reached Ryan around waist high and was picked off by the Welsh. Um, so I, I think you've got to cut Ryan some slack. Ireland have used six different locks in five games and they've had four different line-out callers. And of course, they don't have their primary line-out man there in Devon Toner. So I think you cut them some slack. But yeah, that was a disappointing day. That was, it, was a, it was a bad day for Rory Best. And not a great day for James Ryan, although one can imagine he will only have benefited enormously from this experience. He still had a fairly strong tournament. He was probably one of Ireland's better ga- players around the pitch. And um, coming up against Alan Wynne-Jones in that form, this colossal Welsh second row, 
with his whatever amount of tackles he made, the dominant tackles, just the you, he was he's the beating heart of this Welsh team, probably the player of the tournament, to come up against um, uh, Locke with 133 caps at 33 years of age, playing his best rugby. Will you'd imagine only James Ryan will benefit from the experience. Talk talk about Joe, like yep, you know, yep. Nobody in Irish sport that I can remember has earned the benefit of the doubt. Absolutely, yeah. Like like Joe Schmidt yeah. has over the last six mm. years or however long he's been yeah. involved in Irish rugby. Um, but what's it? What, how do we legitimately question him at this stage? What 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 are the legitimate things that that he needs to to answer for here? Well, he as he acknowledged himself afterwards. They've got to find ways of changing things up. You know, they've become a bit too prescriptive and they have become relatively easy enough to read, it would seem. Wales certainly did a number on them tactically, saw what was coming, helped by the conditions, no doubt, and the early lead. So they've got to add a little bit more variety to their kicking game, add more offloading. Um, without a Joe Schmidt spot play, and there have been some brilliant ones in this tournament, you know, let's not forget the, the wraparound against France, the brilliant precision try against the Scots, which people have come out dismissed as not being particularly relevant I think they're still great some of the best strike plays we've had in this tournament have been from Ireland but unless they come up with one of those they, they can, they're can they starting to look a little bit blunt so he's got to try and change that up a little bit it was interesting that uh, Sorry, just to stop you there because yeah. that, that is something that, that I was thinking about over the weekend because, because you know th- those plays are such a trademark those, mm-hmm. those moves mm-hmm. are they are they something that, that he thinks well, I need these because we don't have the players to do. We don't have the X Factor players like like you were talking yeah. about. Is is that is it is that that he has to be that prescriptive because he doesn't think that he has the the raw talent to play otherwise? I think that's partly it, and I think also he likes to be very in control of everything the team does. The the little barb at the the leaking of the team oh, twenty four yeah. hours in advance is an example of Joe not being in control and he likes to be in control. He's devoted. We talked about this la- yeah. last week with, with Jamie Heaslip and Brian O'Driscoll. I mean, they were telling us about how he absolutely hates you know, it's a, it's when a that gets hate. It's a bugbear because it's a loss of control. Yeah. Um, but surely I, he has to get over that, Jerry. Like it's... Uh, yeah, I, I don't think he, he did himself any favours by coming out with this in the immediate aftermath of defeat. But you've got to understand, Mal, you know, coaches... Yeah. Or managers at every level immediately after a bad defeat. I understand. They're that. raw. Yeah. They say things that 24 hours later they probably shouldn't but say. But we know that this annoys them. Yeah, we know that this annoys Something like the team. It's not like the team. It's not like ordinarily the team only gets given to the opposition an hour beforehand. Mm. Like it, you're talking about a matter of three days versus two days. Like it's it, it's a, such a small thing to get annoyed about. Yep. It's like I said, it's lost control. It's hard to imagine that the Welsh were also on their day off Yes, so read the forty two dot e online or anybody else online, or even take the Germans men the Welsh. Yeah, you'd hope so. Yeah. But even you know, even like to get up on a Thursday morning and check online. Oh, there's the team. Right, we've changed our whole approach to training today. I just, I'd be surprised if that's the case. Um, so sorry. What my point is is that does that that and the prescriptive plays and all that sort of stuff feed into the this level of control that he loves, and mm-hmm. or, or that that love might be the wrong thing there, but that that drives him. That is his his coaching trademark. And I wonder, does that begin to wear on players? Like we look at these players in this tournament doing uncharacteristic things, making uncharacteristic mistakes. I wonder, is there an element of them just kind of? It almost being too much in their heads, this this constant controlling of them. 
I'd be surprised if that was the cause. Um, I think we're all looking for like a, a silver bullet. What's the over? And it's more than likely, as is always the case, a complex myriad of factors. That's just the way sport works. It's not like, you know, the theory about, oh, it goes back to the Leinster-Munster bad-tempered derby in December. Oh, they haven't handled Joe's leaving. Um, Leinster and Munster have had many a bad-tempered derby in the past. I haven't stopped them coming together for Ireland and, you know, becoming a band of brothers again and doing very well. Um, hasn't done Wales any harm knowing that Warren Gatlin's leaving. You know, I don't, I don't think any, any of these simplistic theories apply. I really don't. I just think they... Uh, they have got rattled by early scores against them. The English defeat certainly drained them a lot of confidence, really seemed to damage them. That uh, We've talked about that before. That can happen when a team's on a long winning run. They it, The defeat then is more of a shock to the system. Um, what was surprising about last Saturday was they appeared to have turned the corner with three wins in a row, and particularly the performance against France. That's why I don't think this is a collective loss of form. The form has deserted them. I mean, they were very good against France for an hour. That could have been 40 or 50 nil, no bother. Johnny was excellent all over his game, scored a wonderful try, you know. There was some, John Conor Murray was making good decisions. Why? Because they were getting a lot of front football. The carriers were getting over the line and there was far more energy and aggression in their line speed and defence as well. I don't know why that was missing on um, on Saturday against the Welsh. There, like I said, it was just the complex factors of the game as well. And Wales are a superb defensive team and just lined them up and saw them coming. Isn't part of the reason there, though, Jerry, just the simple fact that France aren't very good? There is that, yeah. It's very easy to say that now in hindsight, that France aren't very good. I mean, the way the win away to Scotland doesn't look too tacky now either, you know what I mean? I, look, it wasn't a vintage championship. I'm not disputing this. It was a poor championship, a disappointing championship and potentially a damaging one for the confidence levels of the squad. But going back to Joe, I hope Joe's confidence isn't damaged mm. by all the flack he's getting. This is the possibly the lowest ebb in his entire tenure as a head coach or even assistant coach with Claremont, going all the way back. He's never been... People talk about the World Cup in 2015, the quarterfinal defeat. That knocked him back. But he came back with utter resolve to make a, a tone and make it better in 2019. So if Ireland did lose three, four, five key men, they were better equipped to cope. I think they would be better equipped to cope now. This I, is what I find fascinating, his response yes, uh, yes. To, a, to a situation that he yeah. has never been in. Yeah, he's a, I'm sure he's a sensitive and intel, as well as being an intelligent man and this has got to hurt the level of flack. It's, it always amazes me how quickly people are to put the boot in when something turns bad. Ireland has still won 21 of their last 24 matches. They've never had a period of success quite like it. They, it's only last December when people were hailing this as the greatest Irish rugby year of all time. And you know what? It was. We've got to remember in this World Cup cycle, Ireland have beaten the All Blacks twice. This was undreamt of. Ireland have won a series down in Australia. Ireland have won a match down in South Africa. Ireland have won three titles out of six, including a Grand Slam. These are all remarkable achievements. And but you understand that the boot, the boot goes in because people are worried that that, that, that was it. This that, was that, their, that was the apex and now we're on the, I, the I, other I side of the mountain. That, I understand those fears. I have those fears myself that last November against the All Blacks was, if you like, this team's Icarus moment. And I hope it wasn't. But I do think they've enough credit in the bank, not only for the supporters to keep the faith, as Joe Schmidt has asked, but also for them to keep faith in each other and the coaching staff and the players. They've got a great body of work behind them. They've got an intelligent bunch of coaches. They've got some very, very good players who didn't play to their, some of whom did not play to their ability in this Six Nations. But they're good enough to come back in August, regroup. And it starts with the provinces. 
And this is good that Ireland, that the RFU invests so heavily in high-quality coaches in Leinster. It's brilliant news that Stuart Lancaster is staying on for two years in Leinster. In a bad week, that was a good news story because Stuart Lancaster, you talk to any of the players on or off the record and they really, really rate this guy and what he's done at Leinster. And you can see what he's done at Leinster. He's a really good coach. Go up north, Dan McFarlane, good coaching ticket up there with Dwayne Peel. Go Andy Friend and Connacht. Um, go Johan van Grand succeeding Razi Erasmus with, you know, uh, Jerry Flannery in there um, and Felix Jones. There are good coaching tickets and they're successful winning provinces that they will all go back to and you know come back into that warm embrace. Remember the the horror show of the 2007 World Cup and this is not anywhere near that level. It just isn't. Trust me, I was in Bordeaux. <laughs> I know how grim that was. This is not as grim and there isn't that same body of work behind them. Um, and I think if you remember in 2007, 2008, after that World Cup, Munster came back and regained the Heineken Cup. Um, all four provinces are in quarterfinals within decent haste two weeks hence the way it's been shoehorned into the seasonal itinerary. But there, there's every reason to believe that these players can regather their confidence and get back in some successful setups, you know, and and come back and all and be fresh by the summer break and come back for preseason in July in, in, in better shape mentally than they left it. I firmly believe that. I still think this team is definitely good enough to make a World Cup semi-final or beyond. That hasn't changed, in my view. It's been, it's been damaging, but hopefully they learn a lot from this. This is where Joe earned his corn now. I mean, he made a very interesting, almost throwaway remark in the aftermath of the press conference. He congratulating Gats on winning a third Grand Slam in 10 attempts, which, when you think of it, with players from the Ospreys, the Scarlets, the Blues and the Dragons, is a ridiculous, it's just a phenomenal achievement. The mess that the regional game is in. Maybe that is perhaps a benefit for the Welsh players. They leave those regions and nothing like the same coaching setups or success they our players are used to with the provinces and come into a setup where they're just brilliantly coached by Gatlin, Edwards and Howley, get a couple of wins, get momentum, get the country behind them, pull on that red shirt, become Superman. I mean, you know, Josh Navidi's performance, we've never seen anything like that for Cardiff Blues against Leinster, Munster, Ulster, Connacht. He was sensational, 25 tackles. He was just a human wrecking ball throughout the whole tournament. He just targeted the main carries and was central and, and you know, merits the place of most people's idea of team of the tournament. But I think that... Uh, he said something like, um, fair play to Gats, 12 years in one job. I've been six years and this has nearly killed me. And I sometimes wonder if he's been slightly, you know, how, how, why has he walked away? How, how exhausted is he by being such, a, with such attention to detail, so full on. He works incessantly around the clock. He speaks without, fee, for, without fees at various functions, various clubs. He watches underage and schools matches. He's forever on the job. I don't think his mind ever make, takes a rest. He probably needs a break from coaching. So you hope he's not too damaged by this, that he comes back strong because he's still the best rugby coach Ireland has ever had. So if he can work this out, come back himself refreshed in August with that strong coaching ticket he has around him, I still think they can pull this together. Give us, Jerry. The we've had enough kind of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Give us the sunny side up way of looking at the next few months. The little things that can come together that can send us to the World Cup in good stead. Well, two trophies at provincial level would be a start. You know what I mean? If Leinster, Munster, Ulster, Connacht between them could win two or three trophies, even I think. You know what I mean? They're they're still in Challenge Cup, Connacht. You know, Champ- Heineken Champions Cup, Leinster, Munster, and Ulster, and of course the Pro Fourteen. They're all sitting very strongly in there. So just a good, strong run in a provincial level would be a starter. Like I said earlier, Munster won the Heineken Cup in 2008. Um, we want Sexton and Murray to find yes, form and confidence. Yes, I don't think they should be wrapped in cotton wool or anything like it. You know, they need to play now and they need to play well and they need to get that winning feeling back. Um, and um, 
that's that's it's yeah the healing process starts with the provinces I wrote this morning. <laughs> the other thing as well, man, like you know the World Cup draw, Scotland are dangerous. Yeah, they oh, show yeah. that in the second half. They were always going to be dangerous. Yeah. And they're going to have Stuart Hogg back most probably if that World Cup opener. Finn Russell has been an absolute joy to watch in this tournament. He's the most entertaining player of the tournament by a mile. If you're 31 nil down, you want no other man than Finn Russell to say, right, have a go, Finn. And he was just brilliant. And they, they uh, t- are tell very... You what, if you're 31 nil up, you really don't want him on the other side. No. So, like, they're dangerous. They, you know, they're really, they were dangerous in the Aviva last season when Ireland won 28-8. That was not a 20-point win. And Japan are six days later. So, you know, there's pressure on to win that opening game. But either way, I think they should make a World Cup quarterfinal. It'll most probably be against South Africa. It could be against the All Blacks. And that's a tall order. But if they were to beat Scotland and Japan, then the way the fixtures fall against Russia and Samoa, they should go in nicely primed for a quarterfinal against South Africa. Whereas in four years ago, in hindsight, certainly. The other way around. Having your yeah. big yeah. concluding match, mm. game four, particularly against an uber-physical French side, the physical carnage that followed for just a week later, no, no, they got 60 points put on them by New Zealand as well. You know, Whereas New Zealand and Argentina had met in round one and by the time they could then target their quarterfinal. That's it. We have our silver lining. You're desperately looking for your silver lining, Pat. I needed something to keep me going, you know. <laughs> it's, Jerry, this is still a good team. Pattern. Yeah. Well, this is still a good gr- yeah. group of players, good group of coaches. We shouldn't forget that. All right. Listen, thanks a million, Jerry. Cheers. You're listening to the Irish Times. A little lost in uh, all the multitude of sport over the weekend, Pat, were uh, two big Irish boxing wins over in America. Uh, on Friday night, Katie Taylor beat uh, Rose Valante in Philadelphia. And on St. Patrick's night, Michael Conlon won his fight in Madison Square Garden. Mm. Uh, Johnny Waterston is on the line to tell us all about it, if anybody missed it. Johnny, um, Katie's uh, fight in Philadelphia, it was another convincing effort from her? I think so, Maliki, yeah. I think it was probably her toughest fight yet. Nonetheless, it was one way from the beginning. I think Valente came out with, with, with better intentions, I'd have to say, than... Many of the fighters Katie has faced before, but she's also a better quality than the fighters that Katie faced before. And certainly the first couple of rounds, Valanti showed that she was there to try and make a fight of it. Um, but at the same time, just Katie's technical ability and her uh, her speed and her all-round boxing game was far too much. And as the fight went on, uh, it was clear that Katie wasn't going to lose this or wasn't going to come close to losing this. Um, where does uh, does she sit now? The, this leaves her essentially one, one yeah. win away from, from uh, being an, uh, the undisputed champion. Yeah, she's one belt off. She's the WBC belt off. She's already won. Th- well, this was her third. The one she won at the weekend was the WBO belt. She already had WBA and IBF. Now, those four belts are probably the the four credible belts. So, uh, as in men's boxing, there are other belts. But those four would be recognized as as the four of the better ones. Um, So, so the the girl she has in her sights now is Delphine Persoon, who's a Belgian fighter. Uh, Persoon has, I think, just lost one in 40-odd outings. And... She's, she's seen as another, probably the, the most credible lightweight that, that Katie would have to face if she was going to to win all four belts. Um, now, that one hasn't been 
confirmed, but there's there's a lot of talk, and they're certainly talking it up to be on the undercard of the Joshua Miller fight, which takes place in New York on June the 1st. And Katie's very often on the Anthony Joshua card because Eddie Hearn uh, pr- promotes both of them. And Joshua and Katie are quite good friends at this point. I think she's been on three of his undercards, at least three before. So this wouldn't be anything new for her. And uh, it'll be back in New York in Madison Square Garden. So that's what people are looking at now, June the 1st, on the Joshua card against Delphine Pursun, which would unite all four belts if she were to win it. It was interesting watching the the fight uh, against Valente, Johnny. She's a particularly muscular uh, woman. And uh, briefly at the start, I kind of thought she, she she looked almost like a different weight division to Katie, but Katie's speed and boxing ability seemed to be what just kept her ahead. Would that be a fair uh, observation? Yeah, I think it would be. Um, I mean, she is. They are the same weight, 135 pounds, around 60 kilos, the lightweight division, which is what Katie's always boxed at, although she's threatening to, to go up to welterweight to face other opponents later in, in her career. But I, I thought so as well. Um, certainly, she was a well-conditioned boxer, uh, Volante you know, as a serious opponent, she, she didn't just come to pick up uh, pick up the money. I, I thought certainly for the earlier rounds, uh, she looked aggressive and she looked strong. But yeah, I'd 100% agree with you. I think Katie's speed is the thing that always makes her better. And it was a clash uh, of heads, though, that slightly decided it in the end. It was. In the end, uh, it was a strange ending, actually. Um, I think the referee probably computed in his head that... She had taken enough punishment over the previous rounds. And then the clash of heads, which which cut her nose. And it wasn't a terribly bad-looking cut, I thought. Uh, he just stepped in and stopped it. It was, a, it was an un- unusual stoppage. He has sort of had a look at her nose and ushered her to her corner. But uh, when they just cleaned her up a bit, the cut wasn't that bad. But I think probably the, uh, just the, the... I mean, Katie beat her for most of those rounds. And I think he, he put factored that in when he stopped it and I think he was right to stop it I think the towel might have come in in, a, in the next round had he not stopped it at that point uh, it was it was an emphatic win again too much leg speed too much hand speed far better technically uh, better tactics and just all around you know a, a better fighter and I think the referee was right to do that Talk to us Johnny uh, a bit about the her her sort of career traje- trajectory in in the pro game now, um, like it's funny she won again on, on Friday night and and I think there's a sort of a collective shrug from sort of Irish sports fans at this stage. They just kind of go, well, of course she did. Sure, that's yeah, that's what yeah. Katie does. And you know, uh, I, there's definitely an undercurrent of well, what is she beating? All that kind of stuff. Um, is is this going as well as she possibly could have imagined it when when she turned pro and went with uh, with Brian Peters and and uh, Frank Hearn? Yeah, two Eddie Hearn, Eddie Hearn, Eddie Hearn. Sorry, <laughs> not uh, Frank Warren, Eddie Frank Hearn. Warren, no, they're both they're easily yeah. <laughs> <laughs> confused. Um, uh, two points there, Maliki. Uh, yeah, I think it is going. It's probably not going as fast as she would like to. I suppose you have to again. You have to consider what she's coming from, which is an amateur career that no one could has equaled and I'm not sure if anyone is going to equal it uh, five world champions six European championships and a gold medal no one has that so she was bringing that experience into the professional game now Katie's going to beat her next opponent of course she is I, yeah I get that that should 
but that you know people sort of sometimes use that as a criticism of her and mm. i don't think it's valid mm. um i think you could apply the same criticism maybe to women's rugby if you were of that mind i'm not of that mind i just see this sport as a sport that's been held back by men largely in the past it's a sport that women had to beat down the doors to get into and i mean i spoke to kelly harrington just a few weeks ago and kelly wasn't allowed to box until she was 16 because no club would take her because she was a woman so you know if you if, if you constantly beat back women in certain sports and you tell them they can't do it they're not good enough they're not the right shape they shouldn't be fighting they shouldn't be tackling each other like that and you stop them from playing then you allow them in there's going to be a catch-up phase and there isn't going to be the depth that there would be in the men's sport and this is what boxing is facing and this is what women's rugby is facing. I think there's a similarity between the two, but I don't think you can criticize them for it. I don't think you can throw it back in their faces and say, well, you're not good enough. And the reason they might not be good enough or they might not be the depth is that the men have been holding them back for generations. Mm. So it, I don't think it's a valid thing to throw at them. I don't think they should have to answer that question. I think you should give them 50 years and then come back <laughs> yeah. and see if that's if that's the same you know i think it's the odd thing though with katie is that uh, uh, i always think that that she nearly got okay she got the adulation in 2012 obviously uh, when, yeah. when she stopped the country uh, for for her gold medal fight but i nearly think that she nearly got a bit more respect after she lost in in rio and when it when it became clear that there actually there is a field out there that can take her on that it isn't all just a cakewalk for her exactly and the amateur field is probably a deeper field in that respect and the the way the amateur scores the fights and the way the pros score the fights you know even now i, I just talked about how women were held back why are why are the women fighting two minute rounds oh yeah yeah <laughs> why is that there's yeah. no reason for it yeah. you know and then people complain, well, Katie's not, you know, she's not stopping them in their fights. She's not stopping them in their fights because they're two-minute rounds. Yeah. You know, most of the stoppages take place at the latter end of yeah. three-minute rounds yeah. in men's. And it, it's just another one of these anomalies that the men have decided, oh, they're only women. They're that's, not fit for it. Yeah. No, yeah. not fit for it. Yeah. No other reason whatsoever, you know. So uh, I'm not sure what your point was, but yes. The, the I'm, I'm rarely sure that, myself. when she was yeah. lost. Sorry, the adulation <laughs> when she lost. Yes, the people twigged that there there is a depth in this, and that Katie is actually only winning was only winning those amateur fights. At Lo I mean, London against Ochigawa in the final, a lot of people didn't know who won that fight in, in the final. Mm. You know, it came down to to slim decision, and she, and she got it, and that's what she was good at, and she always got it, and, and that what that was her brilliance as an amateur. Johnny, another boxer that put in a good performance the weekend was Michael Connell and he beat uh, Ruben Garcia Hernandez, a Mexican in the Madison Square Gardens on Paddy's night. It, um, it's 11 wins out of 11 now for Connell in the professional ranks. And it was interesting yeah. to hear him talk about this fight afterwards. He was talking about it like it was a training routine. He was talking about how these he wanted to try these various things and seemed to be indicating that he was completely in control during the uh, entirety of the of the match. Yeah, again, you know, sometimes when, when these fighters are in our faces, we, we don't realize how good they are. And Conlon is another one. He's another world champion. We don't have many world champion boxers. We have two women, Katie and Kelly Harrington and Michael Conlon, and that's it. You know, and, and Conlon 
as an amateur, was known to be, as in boxing terms, they call it a, a classy amateur in that he had the whole gamut of skills and he was technically very good. And he's just, in a way, like KD, that, that, that brilliance as an amateur has transferred quite well to the professional ranks. And again, his fight at the weekend was his toughest so far. And he, he won it quite easy. He didn't stop him. But uh, again... Uh, it was a unanimous decision, and I, and I thought he. I, I saw clips of it. I uh, didn't see the whole fight, but uh, he looked very comfortable. And you know, I, I, again, what people understand in boxing is is very much the Olympics. And the talk now about Michael is they're gonna they're gonna line him up with Vladimir Nikitin, who was the fighter who beat him in Rio. And I think everyone remembers the. the I think we were all remember the um, the mm. signal that Michael Conlon gave mm. to the judges after that decision. Yeah. Yeah, and in hindsight, it was an appropriate decision. Uh, they sent all uh, they sent a large batch of the referees home, and boxing fell into disrepute, and it's still in disrepute. Certainly, the amateur game is, but you know he, he's he's bounced back from that, and again, he's if he lines this fight up with nicotine, which he will do because they're both promoted by top rank, and one of the reasons top rank signed nicotine because they knew about the olympics and they knew you know they know what makes a good fight and the revenge theme is always a great thing in boxing and so they're talking about the irishman against the russian repeat of the rio olympics controversy and again they're talking about that in the summer and it will happen because both fighters are promoted by the same company and you know i think it's something people would be interested in i think they will remember if anything about the rio olympics they might remember katie losing and and michael's gesture to the judges and it's certainly a good selling point anyway yeah should keep them going listen johnny thanks a million and uh, when the summer comes around we'll uh, check back in It's an international soccer week, uh, which means uh, Emmett Malone back on the podcast. Uh, it's also a, a new FAI uh, scandal. Is probably a bit too far, Pat. But no, you're uh, not too far off being right. Okay, well, a, a scandal, uh, an FAI brouhaha, which also brings uh, Emmett Malone onto the <laughs> podcast. So, uh, Emmett, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Talk to us. Tell us. Tell us about the latest brouhaha and uh, all its glory. Uh, well, on the face of it, it's kind of uh, straightforward enough. Uh, the uh, Sunday Times had a story the other day saying that um, they had a check. They had seen a check from uh, John Delaney made out to the FAI for 100,000 euro. And, uh, and this, you know, they, they, they said they also had an invoice from um, it. The check was in from April 2017. Uh, they also had an invoice from Delaney to the FAI for uh, a similar amount, um, the exact same amount, uh, a couple of months later. And... Um, and they were going to publish this, and the um, the uh, FAI or John Delaney, um, one or the other, or both, um, for it's sometimes different, difficult to differentiate between the pair, um, went to the High Court on Saturday evening to uh, prevent publication. Um, they lost. Um, it's expected that they, you know, that will be proved very expensive for somebody. Um, there was no order, I don't think, made for costs at the time, but it's likely that it will be. Um, and uh, the Sunday Times went ahead and published. And, and, and really, there wasn't a huge amount more to the story other than that. Um, although, you know, obviously that raises some questions, but not as many questions possibly as the amount of uh, effort and expenditure mm-hmm. um, involved in trying to stop the publication of the story. Um, the FAI subsequently issued a statement saying that uh, um, 
that Delaney had simply loaned the organization 100,000 euro because it was going through a particularly tight time cash flow wise. And, and, and certainly on the face of it, that bit is credible. I mean, there's, there's been talk for a long, long time, for many years, really since, you know, the, the 10 year ticket scheme collapsed and the pay repayments on the stadium kicked in um, way back when, well, like 2011, 2012 um, of, of cash flow problems at the FAI. So on the face of it, you know, that bit is plausible, but you know, there are all sorts of questions then. I mean, they, 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 they have a very, you know, substantial overdraft facility with their bank. Um, they have previously gone to UEFA looking for money up front. They've previously managed to wangle 5 million euro out of uh, FIFA. Ah, yes, yes. You know, they have uh, previously gone, uh, there's been stories recently about the number of times they've gone to Sport Ireland looking for their grants up front, you know. So, so they've, 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 you know, they've kept the show on the road. They've got money um, from wherever they could when, when they needed to. Um, it seems a remarkable kind of course of events that they would end up borrowing 100,000 euro off their chief executive. Um, and it's also, I think, you know, people who are in the business who know more about these things than I do suggest that it should have been recorded or mentioned in, in, in their annual accounts, um, which it wasn't. There was no mention of it then. There was no mention of it subsequently. It's really only come out because uh, because the Sunday Times had this check. It- when you get down to the brass tacks, is it is it an embarrassment or is it more more than that? Well, I think it depends, you know, where it goes from here. I mean, you know, on a normal course of events, you know, what we've become used to with yes. the FAI and its treatment of, of, of John Delaney, John Delaney's good doing is that, you know, far from go to the high court to try and prevent a story of him helping out the FAI in its hour of need or saving the day, they would uh, issue a press release with a photograph of John Delaney <laughs> handing over a fun size check for a hundred grand to the treasurer of the association or its accountant, you know? Um, whereas in this case here we have like John Delaney, I mean, you know, it's obviously not great for the association that they find themselves in a situation where they have to borrow a hundred grand if that's what happened. Um, and yet it's not such an embarrassment, you know, like, I mean, as I say, it was generally known that things have been tied out here. There have been a number of stories that have substantiated that kind of take of events, despite the fact that Delaney goes to every AGM and sits down every now and again with the press and, and tells everybody that everything's all great, you know. Um, nobody really was buying that. Um, so it's slightly embarrassing that they find themselves in a situation where where um, they have to borrow 100 grand from the uh, chief executive, if that's what happened. But um, but it doesn't seem so embarrassing that you would spend perhaps half that amount. I mean, I've talked to a couple of people in, in, in the legal business, and they're saying that this, this you know, three hours in, in Judge Anthony Barr's front room or wherever it was may well cost the association or whoever ends up stumping up for it 50 grand um, or, or even more. Um, so it seems an incredible uh, amount of trouble and expense to go to to prevent this reaching the paper if that's all it was. But as I say, there are other questions. You know, why, why did they have to go to Delaney to borrow it? Um, uh, why wasn't it recorded? Why wasn't it, you know, simply um, recorded in a normal way. It's uh, apparently um, a transaction with a related party, which 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 means it it, it, you, it would be normal to record these things in in the um, in the accounts where the auditor is told. Um, there's there's a whole lot of questions, and uh, and instead what we've got is um, is you know two or three statements from from the association basically saying quoting Delaney as saying he acted in good faith, and uh, and and making it clear in the, that their line is that uh, this was a straightforward loan. He loaned the money. It was. Repaid two months later, um, but it just doesn't seem straightforward, um, and, uh, and and nobody at the moment is willing to answer any more questions. They they say that uh, Delaney 
We'll do a briefing uh, uh, on governance at the start of April. Uh, they have commissioned some sort of report from outside consultants. I mean, we've been around this before, you know, like uh, uh, some consultants who are going to be briefed by the FAI and paid by the FAI are going to tell the FAI, you know, what reforms are required. Um, but I presume they're going to come in in April and, and, and flag that as a hugely good story about how they're, you know, they're, they're making progress on governance and everything. And uh, I suspect that there won't be too much given away about uh, what's really gone on with this uh, check and you know at that stage either and but on to the football aspect uh, of the week which mm. has been overshadowed yet again but we're playing Gibraltar Mick McCarthy's back in charge after 17 years away which seems kind of scarcely believable <laughs> yeah. how, how has he been settling in is he getting his boots under the table again how's the week been going for him yeah, he looks like he's enjoying it. I mean, um, it was kind of, it was, really was funny yesterday to be uh, standing, you know, on the sidelines as uh, he took an Ireland training session for the first time in, as you say, 17 years. It's pretty remarkable. I was, I was, I, I was, I was here, um, I, going back further, what would it be, 96, so uh, 23 years ago when he took his uh, very first training session um, with Ireland, um, I was reading back through the archive of it and something like nine players showed up that time. So, um, um, uh, so he's, <laughs> <laughs> He's used to this stuff not going smoothly. So uh, do we have probably, a full team this time, just to be clear? Yeah, the, but we have, we have a, yeah. You're we saying have a this is better. Right, yeah, <laughs> this is exactly. Yeah, we've come a long way in 23 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so look, he's he, he sounded happy to to be out there again. Uh, he's been doing a lot of uh, you know corporate style gigs for the FAI over the last while, um, relaunching their five year ticket or ten year ticket uh, package, and uh, there last week for a new sponsorship deal that they have with a firm of bookies, and um, and he's he's really kind of looked at some of those like uh, the the life force was being drained out of him, you know. Um, uh, there's been a couple of pictures tweeted by their by their commercial department or their press department of him holding kind of fun sized tickets and stuff like that and yeah. uh, and that smile looks pretty forced but uh, he came in after uh, training yesterday and, and and yeah genuinely looked like he'd enjoyed it um Gibraltar I, I mean you know we can we can make a big deal of it or not like mm. the, the the big game is the Georgia game on uh, the following Tuesday presumably you know Gibraltar will be fine. Yeah, well, presumably. I mean, I, you know, um, Mick will remember one or two of the results didn't go so well from his first sure. round, and uh, and and you'll know well enough uh, not to take it for granted. Somebody in one of the press conferences last week asked him, you know, was there some chance that he would um, <laughs> whether he'd rest some players, and um, and he he looked slightly aghast that anyone would think he was uh, uh, kind of uh, naive enough to do that. Uh, they have to beat Gibraltar. We've previously beaten Gibraltar by a lot of goals. But the manager at the time that they had was really kind of, you know, determined to play open football. To, you know, he wanted, had this sort of romantic notion that um, they should go out there and and um, and play their own game against uh, bigger teams. And, and really it had predictable results there. They kept on getting hammered. Um, they've tightened things up again. They have a new coach. Um, uh, they they've they're coming off a Nations League campaign in which they've done reasonably well, and so they're going to be a little bit more confident. They're going to make it difficult. You know, it's going to be the more traditional um, challenge that you would expect with a smaller country like that made up of part-time players. And um, they're going to have to break them down. Um, 
I mean, I, I'm assuming that, you know, uh, uh, Mick was talking yesterday about them being dangerous on the break. I'm assuming things won't quite come to that. But um, but they're, they're going to have to be broken down. And we, um, we're we coming off the back of a year in which we scored four goals, um, uh, some of those in friendlies um, mm. against teams that weren't all that bothered. So, um, so look, I, I'm not 100% sure we can take too much for granted either. But uh, but look, you know, you you know, it will be a big story if we don't beat beat Gibraltar. And um, and after that, and after that, Georgia, yeah, sure. I mean, we're at home. Um, you would expect there to be a little bit of a buzz around McCarthy being back in charge, assuming we're coming off the back of a, a win in Gibraltar. You know, there'll be a you know still a feel good factor about the place. I mean, if we're not, God help us. Uh, but um, uh, but uh, but we've never we've never hammered Georgia. That's for sure. You know, apart from I think in a, we I've beaten them four 0 in a friendly, but the competitive games have all been tight. Mm. They have some decent players. They're always you know they're a decent side. So um, so look, you know that's going to be it. That's it's going to be a, a proper shift, and uh, and we'll 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 get get a, a better sense probably that night of what uh, the Mick McCarthy, the new Mick McCarthy Ireland team is all about. Personnel wise, Emmett, how are we looking? What are we looking at? Well, I mean, the squad as much as it was, Shane Long is gone this morning. He's got a groin injury, and I think he's out of both games. This is only very mm. uh, in the last few minutes uh, that this has uh, uh, become clear. He's he's over here. He uh, turned out for training, but he's sitting watching from the, from the bench, and uh, and it appears that he uh, the, the the suggestion seems to be that he's going to miss both games. Uh, Aidan O'Brien has been called into the squad, so so that's a change, and and it certainly suggests that that Long is gone. Uh, otherwise, you know, look, it's it's the it's. Oh, that 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 you know he he picked uh, last week with a couple of a uh, couple of changes obviously. Ronan Curtis went and uh, Alan Brown went and, and you know Brown in particular is probably a loss I, I think uh, there's every chance that he would have featured prominently in, in one if not both of these games um, you know look it's um, it's going to be interesting to see I, I mean it's obviously much the same group of players that um, that uh, Martin O'Neill left behind Josh Cullen is in um, Jack Byrne is in I don't know you know you got a, both of those are late call-ups but they're, they're late call-ups that McCarthy made after seen them in the flesh and uh, and and expressed you know kind of admiration for the way they played in those games and he and he's talked them up a bit so you know I, I don't think they're as as peripheral as people would normally be in that situation I mean they didn't even make the original squad of 38 but he did see them you know in games after that that squad mm. had been announced so look it's interesting it's going to be chopped and changed he you know he's He's made no secret of his admiration for t- particular players. I think David McGoldrick has a real opportunity mm-hmm. here. Like he's only six caps in four and a half years. I think we're going to see more of him over this current campaign if he stays fit. Um, he suggested yesterday that um, uh, that Darty would play would play on the right side of midfield. I mean, he certainly didn't de- you know declare it as fact, but uh, I think you know that looks to be the way he's going to accommodate him. Um, uh, Ender Stevens and uh, Seamus Coleman. Um, so look, look, there'll be chunks of familiarity about this, but I don't think that for one moment I, there's no doubt that there's going to be some, some, you know, clear signs of evolution as well. Okay, Emmett. Listen, thanks very much, and we will uh, chat again next week ahead of the George again. Cheers, Malky. Take care. See you, Pat. And uh, thanks very much to Johnny, who we were talking to earlier, and to. Jerry. Jerry, indeed, who we were also talking to. You've already put the rugby out of your mind. That's it, it's all over. And thank you to you, Pat, and to Declan behind the desk, and we'll see you all next week. Cheers, everyone.